You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Good morning, church. How you doing? Yeah, a little good? A little good? A little awake? That series is going to be awesome. You do not want to miss the Previval series. Our, our team has been working on that for a while, and I'm super excited to do it. It's going to be the best way to start off 2020. Don't miss it. There's so many things obviously happening in January along with the journey in small groups, and just be here in January, okay? You're going to want to, want to be here. So if you haven't got a chance to meet me, I haven't got a chance to meet you. My name is Taylor, and I'm the Connection Pastor here at FC. And if we haven't got a chance to meet, I'd love to meet you after the service. We'll be at the Connect Center. We can meet each other there. Hope you had a great Christmas with your family and friends. I know I did. Uh, anybody spend their Christmas with kids running around? Anybody? Okay, good bit of you. I figured that'd be the case. Well, our family is growing, so we're not quite there yet. Me and Victoria have a little girl named Esme. She's almost two. My brother just had a kid, had a little boy. And we are actually expecting a little boy in March, so we're, we're taking steps, we're getting there, okay? But I remember as a kid, with all of my brothers and my cousins going over to our grandparents' house for Christmas, and kids running around is just so fun. Maybe not, but it was when I was a kid. Um, and so, as a kid, you know, you're running around, and I know like the, the, the whole vibe is when you go to your grandparents' house and you're with your cousins, you're showing off, you know, your stuff, right? Everything you got yesterday from mom and dad or from your other grandparents is like, check out my new and one hoodie, and one, anybody, and one? And you know, like I got my new watch, you know, you're wearing your, your gifts, basically, and you're showing them off and you're, you're showing your friends all your new things. And if, I love watching kids in the midst of all this chaos because, in you know, a large family, you always have that one kid who's like the leader of the pack, right? It's usually the oldest, not always, but usually. And this kid is like the rule follower. He's making sure everybody's in line. If anybody gets out of line, he's gonna let you know, or she. And so that's gonna happen. And then as they grow up, they continue to be this. They continue to be that rule follower, right? They, uh, and even if, if, if they were the one in the wrong, right, they've got all of the trust of the parents, right? So they're like, they're, they're gonna challenge you, you know, just test me, just see, see, mom and dad will believe me, I'm, I'm the oldest, you know, I, I know stuff. And so that, this happens all the time. But these kids grow up, and frankly, they grow up to be oftentimes, not all the time, but they grow up to be self-righteous and very independent and, uh, and you know, that look at me type personality uh, at how good they are. I was that kid. <laughs> I was that kid growing up, to be honest. And uh, I've, that hasn't really changed, unfortunately, for the most part. Uh, but maybe you can't relate to that. Maybe that's not your childhood or whatever. Maybe that's not who you are. But maybe you can relate to that kid at school. When you were, you know, your senior year of high school and you're trying to skip fourth period, you're trying to ditch and go to McDonald's or whatever afterwards with your friends. And there's that one kid in the class who's the teacher's pet and as soon as they get a whiff of this conspiracy, they're telling the teacher, you're caught, you get detention, or whatever your punishment was in high school, uh, there's always that kid, right? Or maybe even having come to church before. You've come to church and for whatever reason, there were people that looked at you a certain way or talked to you a certain way and you felt judged maybe because of your family or what you looked like or something about your story. You felt judged by somebody else who thought they were better than you, who thought that they had the upper hand and they condescended to you in a self-righteous way. Well, these people 
are just like the people that Jesus encountered in the Bible many, many times. And they were, they were called the Pharisees. These are these self-righteous people who judged others based upon what they looked like or what they did or didn't do. And these are the kind of self-righteous people that think they are better than they really are. And they're inclined to look down on others because of it. Jesus regularly encountered this people, the Pharisees. And these Pharisees were, if you don't know, if you aren't familiar with them, they not only judged people, uh, but they, the reason they did this is because they were these well-educated men. They were well-educated in the scriptures. They were teachers of the scriptures. The people trusted them as religious leaders. And so they took advantage of that. They were so well-educated that they would flaunt uh, their knowledge and their good deeds. They were known for their piety. And they went so far as to reinforce not just the law of the Lord, but they would reinforce even more laws and rules beyond what God had required to make sure that no one messed up, or maybe even to elevate themselves. Today, we're gonna take a look at one of these encounters in Matthew 15. And as we turn to Matthew 15, I wanna ask you one question today. What does obedience that pleases God look like? What does obedience that pleases God look like? Is it simply rule following and, and doing the right thing? Is it merely your behavior that is obedience? Or is it something deeper that God can see through? Is it something on the inside of you that leads to behavior? Now, when we read this account of uh, Jesus and the Pharisees, you'll, I think you'll gather what I'm talking about here. So Matthew 15, starting in verse one, okay? Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Okay, so we don't know how this came about. We don't know if one of these Pharisees saw Peter going in the bathroom and didn't wash his hands when he came out. We don't know if this is like a thing they observed over time and finally they're just calling out Jesus for, hey, your dudes aren't super hygienic. You might wanna check this out. We don't know the context, but for whatever reason, they decide to call Jesus on it and this is what happens. Jesus answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now notice, Jesus didn't answer their question. He knew why they asked it, and he was getting to the heart of the matter. He goes on to say, For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. If you aren't familiar with this, this is one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus commanded his people to honor their parents. And Jesus is recalling that Ten Commandment, and here's why. Jesus goes on to say, But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now this is a little confusing, I understand. When he says, he's quoting them, what you have gained from me is given to God. This is what a Pharisee or, or one of these religious leaders in the Old Testament would have said to their parents. And the reason they would have said this is they had a law, a condition, if you will, that if they were going to go into this Levitical priesthood, if they're going to go into vocational ministry for the sake of their ministry, what they would say to their parents is, hey, all that time and effort and care I would give to you, it's going to go to God. So I'm kind of dismissed of this honoring you. And you gotta remember that honoring your parents in this day was well beyond just talking about them nicely and obeying them. It was, it was in a community that was very familial. 
very centered around taking care of the family. We didn't have retirement homes and assisted living and these kind of things that take care of us in our old age that we have today. The family took care of their own. And so this was a big deal. And obviously the Pharisees saw fit that, you know what, I'm kind of dismissed of that because I'm doing something righteous and holy. And what Jesus points out to them is them doing that for the sake of their own tradition, the sake of their own laws, voids the word of God. It disobeys God. Jesus goes on to say, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, I hope you see that what Jesus saw in these men was not just the argument they were trying to make, but he saw their heart. And he saw that these Pharisees loved rules. They loved the law. And they probably started off making all these rules and, and setting up boundaries beyond what God had given for good intentions. Let's, let's just assume the best of them. Assume that they were trying to live a life that was pleasing to God. Best case scenario, that's what they were doing. But here's the problem. When you merely tell people what to do or not to do, you aren't changing their heart. You aren't cultivating the desires of their hearts for what God desires. The Pharisees had grown to cherish their rules over God himself. And that was demonstrated in their willingness to adhere to their own rules over obeying God's law. Jesus provides a clear declaration of what is happening in their hearts by quoting the prophet Isaiah when he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They were giving lip service to the Lord, saying how much they loved and adored God in public, doing things that were righteous and good, all while their hearts were far from the Lord, far from being sincerely obedient. We see these Pharisees doing two things. And these are things that we also do. And I hope that as we look at these that you can relate. The first thing that we see them doing is they and we point to others' sin to elevate ourselves. Point to others' sin to elevate ourselves. This is that classic judging that we were talking about a moment ago. And it often comes out in gossip or even, even in our thought life as we... We may not speak it out to people, but in our own thought life, as we see other people in our lives, we elevate ourselves internally. We have this inner dialogue of, wow, I'm so glad I'm not like that person. I'm so glad I don't struggle with that. I'm so glad things are going well for me. I've never done that. I will never do this. Look at me. God must be pleased with me. And that's the heart. That's the, the thoughts of the heart and mind that believes that. And as we do that, for some reason, to be honest with you, this is really common in church people, in religious people. That's why these Pharisees did this. We see everything as right or wrong. And we feel worthy to point out to everyone, especially when they are seemingly in the wrong, and all the while we're blind to the infinite amount of grace and mercy that we have received for the things that we did or do that are unpleasing to the Lord. And this is as old as the garden. It's as old as the Garden of Eden. To avoid being seen for our own shortcomings, we point to the failure of others or blame others to push the attention away from ourselves. 
We complain and we get upset with our, our spouses or our friends or our, our coworkers, our boss. And we complain about how they've wronged us, how awful they are, how bad they are, how ungodly they are, all to avoid addressing the primary issue within us. It reminds me of a, a pretty, uh, pretty funny word picture that Jesus gave us, and you're probably familiar with it, but Jesus gave us a word picture of someone who's doing this. It's as if you're walking around in life, okay, and you have a giant two by four sticking out of your face, okay? And meanwhile, you're going around to your friends and family or whoever, and you're saying, hey, you've got a splinter in your eye. Meanwhile, there's a two by four sticking out of yours. Do you know how stupid you look when, when you point out the small things that are seen in others' life? Meanwhile, there's glaring sin and disobedience and shortcomings in your own. And to be honest with you, there's, there's been one phrase that has stuck with me in my own life and my own battle with self-righteousness that continues to, to, to be a help to me. And it's at the cross is even ground. At the cross is even ground. This is what this means. It's, it's another word picture that, that when, before we've come to believe Jesus, before we've come to follow Jesus, we come to the cross and we, those of us who struggle with self-righteousness, and I'd say all of us do to some degree, we have this perception that we've come to the cross at varying heights, at varying degrees of guilt. Some of us have come with a little smaller rap sheet of right and wrong, right? But the reality is, is according to, to God, according to the one who wrote the law, according to the one who, who gave the cross, he said that all are equally guilty and unrighteous. And so as we come to the cross, you stand equally condemned as anyone else. And the same is true after we have believed in the cross. And this is the beauty and the message of the cross is that, is that as we have believed in the one who died for us and lived in our place, we are now equally righteous with one another because we all have Christ's righteousness. We have no less righteousness from Christ. But we don't act that way, right? We, we act as though oh, they're worse than me, oh, I'm better than them, no matter what side of the cross you're on. So when you find yourself impatient or judgmental toward that unbelieving coworker, or even that person from the small group that you used to be in, remember, at the cross is even ground. No one is any better or any worse than anyone else. Everyone is in equal need of grace from God. Now, the second way that we see the Pharisees trying to make themselves look better is that they hide behind what they do to hide who they are. We hide behind what we do to hide who we are. This was a very often uh, occurrence for the Pharisees and Jesus' interaction with them. They would boast all the time about all that they knew and all that they did, and Jesus always saw through it. He called them out for praying and fasting for the whole world to see because they were trying to get noticed for being so holy. And they were really after the praise and approval of man. And this is perhaps one of the scariest to me because this is something that's so inundated in our culture. As American Christians, we have filled our lives with so much busyness, so much to do, so much to be. 
And in the midst of the noise, we've become spiritually disoriented. We've convinced ourselves that, you know what? Hey, if I'm a, if I'm a partner at FC, if I've gone through the, all the journey classes, I'm in a small group, I'm serving, I'm doing all the stuff. Therefore, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus. And don't, don't hear me wrong, those are good things. But that is merely the surface. That is merely the, the things that we do as followers of Christ. The irony is that in all of these places that you are doing these things and learning, these are the same places that you're hearing from us and you're, 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 you're being taught what Jesus taught. You're being taught who Jesus is and the purpose he has for your life. And you nod your head as if to say, yeah, I totally agree. I'm on board, I'm good. All the while struggling with secret sin underneath and you think to yourself, no one has seen, and as long as no one has seen and no one gets hurt, it's all good. God sees. God is hurt by our sin. And not to mention that, that everything that is done in darkness will be brought to the light. Whether it's tomorrow or when Christ returns, you will be exposed for who you truly are whether that is someone who has played the game and done the things and pretended to be, or someone who sincerely loves the Lord, sincerely follows him. The worst part is that when you end up living this lie long enough, you believe that you really are who you are portraying to the rest of the world. You're so deep into your own illusion that you would be in total denial of the sin in your life, even if someone brought to you clear evidence that you were living in habitual sin. And I pray today that your hard heart is softened and that you would see the grace that is offered to you, the light that brings hope. So we point to other sin to elevate ourselves and we hide behind what we do to hide who we really are. Now let's keep going with what Jesus said so Jesus called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So Jesus is, is rebuttaling to what the Pharisees accused them of, and he's telling them what really defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And to be honest, I, I don't want to speak on Jesus' behalf, but I almost imagine, or at least if I was Jesus, I'd be like, yeah, I hope they were. He answered them, Jesus answered them, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So what Jesus is saying here is that first, these men are not from God or for God. And that's what he means by having been planted by God. And secondly, he's saying that they are blind to both their own standing before God and are leading others astray by blind teaching. In other words, blind people will only perpetuate blindness. Blind people will only perpetuate blindness. Whether, whether you are totally spiritually blind and you're lost and far from God, or even even 
a spot of blindness, a blind spot in those, those of you that follow Christ and, and there are areas of your life that you've chosen to ignore. You've chosen, you've, you've, you've willingly chosen to be blind to these spots in your life. Anyone love to go hiking? Anyone love to go up to the mountains, go for a good hike? Me too. I'm an, I love to hike, I love to backpack. I'm for that. Um, so today, let's just say we've got an expert out in the Connect Center today. He is a avid hiker, super experienced. He's gonna take us on a guided hike after church today, okay? And we're gonna have an awesome time. We're gonna go have communion up on the mountain and just praise. We're gonna sing all authority just over and over again. And it's gonna be awesome, okay? And this guide is great. He's very experienced. Um, he, honestly, he knows the map of the Smokies like the back of his hand. Uh, oh, and just to let you know, he is blind. Uh, yeah, he's totally blind, can't see a darn thing. Uh, but he's a great guide. He's, he's super intelligent. Like he could tell you the latitude and longitude of wherever you wanna go. He's got it memorized. So it, he's, just, he's just blind. No big deal, right? No. Like obviously, you're not gonna file a blind person into the woods, even if there's a path. <laughs> you're not gonna do that. That's ludicrous. But those, <laughs> those who follow People like this, they're gonna, going to be obviously led into darkness. They're gonna be led astray. And so I wonder today, and I ask you sincerely, what if you are spiritually blind? Are you willing to ask yourself to that, that today? What if you think you have it all right and God is pleased with you, but you're in fact wrong? What if you're spiritually blind today and you're asking others to follow you, your friends or your family, those who've trusted you to lead them spiritually? What if you have a friend who recently received Christ and you're trying to lead them, but you're actually blind and you're not taking them where they need to go? And I don't, I don't mean to, to stir up doubt in your heart that does not belong there. Doubt is not from the Lord. But I do mean to cause you to sincerely question, do you believe? Have you been given sight to see? There are obviously varying degrees of blindness, so don't let me speak too generally, but the only solution to this kind of blindness, this being totally blind, is to be humbled by the light of truth. People who are suffering from this kind of blindness are typically proud and defensive, and the only thing that will get their attention is to be humbled by the Lord and for things that have been lurking in the darkness to be brought to the light for all to see. Maybe the blindness you suffer from is merely a blind spot and rather than being altogether blind, you are simply blind to a piece of your life. And that's hopefully the majority of us today. Hopefully there's, there's not so many totally blind people here today. I hope that's not the case. But you, you have to ask yourself if you are or not. And if you are, let me give you hope today. Jesus came to heal the blind, both physically and spiritually. Jesus is the light that overcomes the darkness and he wants you to see today. So if you're willing to be wrong, to trust that Jesus is right, that Jesus has authority over all, that Jesus is life, then you will be freed from blindness today. Take the time to consult your Bible, to confess to a brother or sister. Take time to consult his word. Ask someone who knows you really well and who loves you well and ultimately loves God. Ask them if you're blind. Ask them to show you what you cannot see.
Jesus told his disciples what the law about washing their hands is really all about, and he told them what is wrong with the Pharisees. So maybe it still doesn't make sense to you, maybe what he said about what really defiles a person doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to the disciples either, so let's just see what Jesus explains. Peter said to Jesus, explain the parable to us. And Jesus says, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? I don't wanna get too graphic this morning, but do you get what's going on here? It's pretty logical. When you eat food, it comes out, okay? That doesn't defile you, all right? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now obviously what Jesus has to say is not about personal hygiene and whether or not it's gross or not to wash your hands before you eat. That's not what he's trying to say. What he's saying is he's getting to the heart of the matter and he's saying to these people, his disciples and the Pharisees, that your heart is where defilement exists or does not exist. Whether you're defiled or not is not a result of what you ate this morning. It's not a matter of whether you practice healthy hygiene. What is defiled or not resides in your heart. The very core of who you are And we know whether you're defiled at the core or not based upon what you say and do. Because Jesus said that what comes out of you is from your heart. It's from the inside outward that we live and breathe, that we do and say. Everything that we do and say originates in our heart. Jesus teaches this kind of behavior versus heart reality many, many times. He takes rules or behavior and um, the law from the Old Testament, and then he takes it even deeper than when it was previously given. I'll, I'll give you a few examples. The two of the most vivid, vivid examples are in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and this is one of Jesus' most famous sermons, the best sermon ever preached. And in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21, this is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hellfire. See, Jesus is saying, before you even get to the act or the behavior of taking your brother's life or anyone's life, sin has already occurred. The thought of, of mere hatred towards another brother is already sin, it's already disobedience. He says it again in verse 27 regarding a different sin issue. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, long before an affair, when you click the button, when you have the conversation you shouldn't have, when you linger, when you do what should not be done, when when your thoughts finger on another person that is not your spouse, you've already failed. Your heart is already at fault. Sin starts in our hearts and grows from there. 
what Jesus is making very clear in these teachings and in what he's saying to the disciples is that you are, sorry, I skipped this part. (laughs) When you see things the way Jesus sees them, you see them for what they truly are. So what I'm saying here is that, that when you see sin the way Jesus sees it, then you're seeing accurately. We have to see things the way Jesus sees them. I don't, it, I, God is less concerned about what you feel is right or wrong. He's less concerned with what you perceive to be right and wrong. He's not concerned at all what other people think about you as whether you are right and wrong. He sees what is true and right, and we have to listen to him. So you are what is in your heart. You are what is in your heart. If you're a child of God and your heart is being made holy, and you desire holiness, then what you say and do will be shaped by holiness. However, if you're a child of darkness and your heart longs to do whatever it pleases without wisdom or without any regard for the creator, then you will do whatever you want and it will be shaped accordingly. When your heart is for God, then you will do what a loving, grateful child does for their fathers. You obey even when you aren't sure why yet or, or how this is better for you, even when you're unsure about how this obedience could possibly be the best, like a, like a loving, trusting child, you trust the heart of your father who knows best. Or the opposite is true. When your heart is for yourself, then you will do what you desire. You will, you will act like a hateful, ungrateful child towards your father. You will do and say whatever feels best to you without any regard for whether it dishonors the Lord. You will schedule your time, you will spend your money, and you will worship whatever idol seems the most life-giving today. We see these things that are in our hearts when we're under stress, even when we're bored or when we're suffering. It's when our back is against the wall that the pressure of life squeezes what's truly in our hearts. And I've seen it time and time again in my own life. I've seen it in your lives. And I've I've seen it over and over that this is always the case. The pressure of life and circumstance will squeeze out what is truly in the hearts of men. Let me put it this way. Who or what do you love? Do you love yourself more than you love Jesus? Do you love other people more than you love Jesus? Or is Jesus enough for you? Is the man who lived in your place and died for you the one who you love and who you live for? Or do you live for man? Do you live for yourself? You are what is in your heart. Jesus gives the best illustration of this relationship of our hearts to our behavior. And he he uses time and time again these analogies of trees and plants and vines all throughout the gospels. And I think it's the best possible analogy. And I I want to, to give you a different analogy that's very similar. Imagine that I went to an apple orchard today. Okay, I don't know what season apples grow, so just disregard my inability to articulate agriculture or any of those rules. But Go to an apple tree, it's fruitful, it's, it looks delicious, whatever your favorite apple is. If you like Red Delicious, I'm sorry, that's a bad idea. We'll go with Granny Smith. So you take a Granny Smith, it's beautiful, it's delicious, it's, it's, it's healthy, right? Imagine I go next door to a orange orchard and I attach these apples to a orange tree. Let's say, let's just, just 
There's no oranges on it yet. It's a different season. Again, don't know if that's true, but assume it is. And you attach the apples to this orange tree. Does that make it an apple tree? No, it doesn't. I know at least that much. I know at least enough to know that it starts with a seed, okay? Or, or better yet, if the tree was dead, if you attached healthy, thriving, beautiful fruit to a dead tree, does it bring it to life? No, it doesn't. That's what we do when we think that our behavior makes us holy. That's what we do when we try to clean up what everybody else sees, when in fact we're dead inside. Jesus, Jesus accused the Pharisees of being whitewashed tombs. Tombs that look pretty and, and, and royal on the outside, but in fact, inside is death. Life and fruit start at the roots. And this is exactly what we do with our behavior and everything else that people see. Stop trying to clean up what everyone else sees so that other people will approve of you. Decide where your heart will take roots. Nourish it there so that it produces the fruit God intended for you and his kingdom. You have to start at the roots. The process of heart change, though, is, is long and rigorous. It is not easy. But while we work towards these things, while we work to, to root ourselves where God intended us, God has promised his power, his presence for the journey and the perfection of the destination. Jesus has the power to change your heart. Not you, not your pastors, not your small group leader, not your parents. Jesus alone has the power to change the hearts of men. You were in desperate need of Jesus before he found you and you are still in need of him today. God plants the trees. God waters and nourishes them. It's his spirit that produces the fruit. It's his glory and power that will be displayed. And of course, again, pointing back to our American Christianity, we look for the quick fix, right? I need to be changed today. We're often intelligent and rational enough to realize, okay, God, I need the change. I need you to do this in my life. I need the heart change. But we're impatient for the journey. How many times the past three months did you choose the, the I'll pay the extra five to $30 for the shipping so I get it here tomorrow? How many times did you choose the, the food delivery service or go out to eat instead of cooking a meal? Didn't want to clean up the mess, especially after the holidays. I get it, moms. Get it. Get it. But how many times have you read these miracle moments in the Bible and thought to yourself, that's what I need. I need God, I need God to change my life in a moment. I need him to strike like a lightning bolt and change the course of my life. And he, he will do that, he has done that. But the greatest, deepest change in my life never came in a moment. It has come through the journey. And if you're looking for a miracle today, he has come. His name is Jesus. You're looking for the miracle that has already come. And he wants to give it freely and gladly. The change that Jesus brings to your heart rarely comes in a moment. It comes 
over the grace and time that he gives. And if the one who has the power to alter your life in a single moment has ordained that you become holy along the journey, then it must be best. If the infinitely wise one decided that what's best for you is the journey of holiness and not not a moment of being changed, but a lifetime of moments, then that must be best for you and me. This has been a very personal sermon for me. (laughs) This has been my life. I'm that kid that grew up in the, the, the good family that loved the Lord and grew up in church and, and did all the stuff and the things and decided at a young age that I wanted to follow Jesus and that, that he was my life. But I've struggled, well, well, I've confessed many times, I need Jesus and I believe that I need him. I have wrestled so many times to truly believe what I've confessed, that I actually need Jesus for everything. And I came to a point at the beginning of this year where I tried to take an ax to the root of that sin in my life of self-righteousness and independence from the Spirit of God. And he brought me to this, this passage in Jeremiah. And it's these four verses that have changed my life. Jesus said to the prophet Jeremiah in those, those verses, he said, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall see no good come. He lives in the parched places of the wilderness and an uninhabited salt land. But blessed are those who trust the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and does not grow anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And I, I love that picture of a tree planted by the water because, because it takes a long time for a tree to grow deep and, and to grow rooted by the stream of life. And it's this, every plant analogy that Jesus used expressed this idea of time and patience, both God to you and you to him. And if you're willing to go on that journey, I promise you fruit will be produced. I promise you, God promises you. He promises you that fruit will come. Now, you know, some of you in the room may not relate to that today. Maybe, you know, Taylor, you're self-righteous, man, so sorry for you, but I'm not that person. <laughs> rules, rules and behavior and working harder and doing better, that's not me. <laughs> I'm a little overwhelmed by the thought of being good enough. If anything, I'm, I'm the self-deprecating one. But remember this, there is one thing in common with the self-righteous and the self-deprecating. Self. The focus is on you. Whether you think you're good enough or you think you're unworthy, you think that, that, that you'll never be good enough, regardless of what you believe, the, the answer is the same. We raise our gaze to Jesus. You look at the perfectly righteous one and you behold his glory. 
And as you behold him, I, I, I don't know how, it's miraculous and beautiful, but somehow by looking at him, by, by beholding him, we are changed. We become like him. We fall in love with him and we obey him. So we're getting ready to enter 2020, another year. And I hope that you don't want it to look the same. Whether this year has been great or awful, I hope that you're willing to look in some places that maybe you haven't looked before or very often and see where you're blind, see where darkness is still there and allow the light of the Lord to shine it out. I wanna take a brief moment with you and while I have your attention, I want you to give your attention to the Lord. So I just want you to bow your heads for a moment and I want you to sit in the silence of the moment and allow the Spirit of God to reveal to you what you cannot see. Ask the Lord to help you see what you cannot see. Let him speak to you. us to our knees and Lord I pray that as we are brought to our knees and you lift our heads to see your cross the image and the, the picture of your holiness and grace simultaneously displayed would we behold you would we be changed by you would we love you and would our love for you and our hearts bring us fruit of obedience and love and patience and kindness and self-control and faithfulness and steadfastness. May we abide in you so that when the inevitable drought comes, we will not cease to bear fruit for your great name. Father, I pray these things with great expectation and anticipation because you are a good father. And I can pray these things because of Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.